Hello and welcome to Navara FM. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny. Where does the wealth in the welfare state come from? Standard accounts of the Attlee miracle, which in 1945 secured a social safety net for the workers of Britain, look at the archipelago in isolation from the question of empire. Academic Gominda K. Bambra contends that this is a fundamental flaw in the stories we tell about how the nation-state was formed through warfare, welfare, taxation and colonial plunder. Bambra is the Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies in the Department of International Relations and the Director of Research and Knowledge Exchange in the School of Global Studies, both at the University of Sussex. Her latest title is Colonialism and Modern Social Theory, This week, she joins me to talk about the history of Britain as an imperial state with a national project at its heart, and how reparations might point us all towards a brighter future. Gaminda, hello, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, it's a real pleasure to be here. So in your work, you reassess the standard accounts of taxation and welfare that are claimed to be central to the construction of the nation. I'd like to kick off by asking you about what those standard accounts are. What are the stories that we are usually told about the relationship between tax, welfare, and the construction of the nation state? So the contemporary arguments for taxation really came about in the context of the world wars. And there was this sense that the population had sacrificed so much during this period that there ought to be some return to them for that sacrifice. And so after the First World War, you had welfare economists trying to figure out how much the rich could be taxed so that it wouldn't necessarily affect them so much. But when that taxation was distributed, it would raise the levels of people who were otherwise living in poverty and and so on. And so there were these arguments that were being made at that time, but it was really about how the money coming in could be divided. But what wasn't recognised at that time is that the national dividend that they were talking about was not only established through national sources. So it wasn't simply national taxation or national wealth that they were calculating in their calculation of this national dividend. It was actually an imperial dividend. So money was coming in from empire, which was taken to be national, which could then be divided. And so I was interested in, given the arguments that have been made around taxation and welfare have been organised so strongly around the idea of the nation, how was it possible that people hadn't taken into consideration the fact that the wealth that was being redistributed wasn't simply national in origin? And how does that that complexity, if you like, change the way in which we might otherwise rethink what is a very simple story, that the national population creates this wealth, this should be a means of redistributing that wealth to the national population, in particular in the context of the wars and the sacrifices that were made by people, how do we, re- you know, how do we recompense them for that? But not only the money came from abroad, but if we think about who fought for the wars, it wasn't the British nation that was at war, it was the British Empire that was at war. And so the populations that suffered losses, that suffered privations and so on, were not simply national subjects, but were colonial subjects as well. And yet these debates haven't been brought together. So you have a whole debate on the history of the welfare state and the redistribution of tax in relation to welfare in relation to that. And then you have a literature on empire, colonies, and so on. And yet, for me, these are part of the same conversation, but there is no literature that brings them together. So part of what I've been trying to do in my research is think about taxation and welfare in the context of the British Empire and not simply ideas of of nationhood. So for you, why is taxation such a powerful tool when it comes to clarifying the the dimensions and the power relationships in which we now find ourselves? Because you write about how it formalizes our relations of power and obligation and what kinds of equality uh, and inequality rather we we tolerate and which and which we don't. 
So I was reading uh, a book that came out recently called A New Fiscal Sociology by Martin Mihotra and Prasad. And in there they talk about the way in which we should understand taxes is that they formalize our obligations to each other. They sort of point to the limits of the forms of inequality we accept and those that we don't, because taxes become a way in which the state mobilizes the wealth of the nation, if you like, or of the state in order to address those inequalities. And again, one of the things that I was sort of interested in was whilst, you know, so in, in that way, taxation becomes central to the idea of the nation. And yet, through my research, I discovered that the people who paid taxes to the British state were not simply national citizens. They were also colonial subjects. And so there was a distinction, actually, between the fact that taxes were being collected at the colonial or imperial level but welfare was only redistributed at the national level. And so it became clear to me that one of the things that I've argued for a long time is that Britain ought to be understood as an empire and not a nation. And when we look at the relationship between taxation and welfare, what we see is that the collection of taxation occurs at the colonial level, but the redistribution of those taxes as welfare only occurs at the national level. And so we have an imperial polity, that is an imperial state, that is being funded by the taxation collected from its colonial subjects. And we have a national project at the heart of that imperial state, which is defined through the redistribution of those imperial taxes as national welfare. So there's a very clear um, distinction between the empire and the nation, but only in terms of redistribution, not in terms of how that empire actually collects and, and, and appropriates the wealth. Could you elaborate a little bit more about that difference between the nation and the state? Because sometimes we, we use them kind of interchangeably, right? But there's, in your work, there's a, there's a clear distinction about uh, between the imperial state as an extractive uh, institution and the nation as uh, a vector of distribution. So how should we sort of start separating those out conceptually? Well, I think it's more the fact that many historians of Britain or commentators on Britain want to understand Britain as a nation. And to the extent that they do engage with empire or think about empire, empire is always something that exists externally to the nation. So you see it in the language, Britain had an empire. So there is this thing called Britain, and there's something called empire which exists outside of that, and Britain has it. And so in that sense, there's no um, consideration within that way of thinking that there's actually a relationship between these two things or that the nation is dependent upon the empire. It's just something external to it. And I would want to argue that the state that Britain is is actually an imperial state, not a national state. And one of the ways that we can see this is the fact that Britain itself as an entity doesn't come into being until 1707, where you have the union between the kingdoms of England and Scotland. That's what creates Britain. And both England and Scotland separately prior to 1707 had already established colonies. So they come together as already involved in colonialism, as already understanding themselves as imperial states, and then they go on to establish an empire over the next 200 years. That state shapes the very functions of institutions within the national polity. There's a discourse of it being national, but the reality is, is that these are imperial institutions. So for a long time, the colonies were administered through the Home Office, not the Foreign Office, because the Foreign Office was about relations between Britain and external entities. The Home Office was for the administration of the territory internal to Britain, and the colonies were part of that. And so in that sense, you see how the very structure of the state is organised around its understanding of itself as an empire rather than as a nation. I'm not denying that there's a national project, but the national project is a racialized project at the heart of the state, which has a discourse, but no reality separate from being constructed through that imperial context. And the failure to take the empire into consideration is what distorts our understanding of the state that we are today.
In the effort of illuminating those misunderstandings, you take as your central case study uh, India. And so I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about how those histories that you're looking at developed, how how the colonial rule, both directly and indirectly, uh, used taxes to drain wealth from, from the subcontinent. So the relationship between Britain and India is is a long one and it's a quite complicated one. And it's not a relationship that was always in relation to the state. So India or parts of India come to be colonised initially by the East India Company, which is the company that emerges uh, from England and then uh, becomes the British East India Company subsequently. And After a period of trade with India, and particularly with sort of Bengal, Orissa, and and those areas, it engages in military combat with the local rulers, and it wins at the Battle of Plassey in uh, 1757. After that, it gains tax-collecting powers from those states, and that leads to the establishment of extraordinary wealth. You may have heard of this term called nabobs. You know, so these were British people who would go to India, make massive fortunes, and then bring that wealth back and then establish country houses, you know, have uh, give, give money to charity. So philanthropy, welfare was often funded through these forms of private philanthropic um, activities and so on. And so you have that relationship there for a long time. And then in 1857, after what's called in some places the Indian Mutiny, in other places the First War of Independence, the British state takes over direct rule of India. And within three years, it establishes an Indian income tax, in part to pay for the costs of having suppressed the, the rebellion or, or revolution. And what astonished me when I was reading this history was the fact that colonial subjects were being required to pay income tax from the 1860s. And this was the time when the working class and middle class in Britain didn't pay income tax. And they don't come to pay income tax until really some way into the First World War. So for about 50 or 60 years, you have colonial subjects in India paying income tax which goes directly to the government at Westminster. And this is money that's then used to uh, fund the poor laws within Britain, to pay for anything that the government at Westminster wants to use that money for. You know, that it's, it's entirely their prerogative to do that. But this money is definitively not used to address any issues of welfare within India. Coincidentally, or perhaps not so coincidentally, from the point that the British established income tax in India, 1860 onwards, you have the worst period of famine that the subcontinent has ever seen. And many estimates, conservative estimates, put the figures at around 14 million people who die of starvation as a consequence of colonial public policy decisions that are being made. And why we know that this is a consequence of colonialism and not devastating crop failure is because grain was being exported out of India during this period to feed Britons in Britain rather than to address the problems of famine within India. And there were arguments within parliament and debates and discussions about whether any of the money that had been collected in income tax ought to perhaps be redirected to help mitigate against the worst effects of the famine in India. And the argument was a utilitarian argument that no, all you would be doing is uh, ensuring that poor people who would have died anyway would stay alive and they'd stay alive and have more children and create more poor people. So it would actually just be a drain of resources to um, to spend any of the welfare there or spend any of the money in welfare. And so there was an explicit injunction that whilst these were subjects who could be taxed, being taxed gave them no entitlement to the redistribution of their own uh, funds. Because our current moment is so defined seemingly uh, by uh, tax cuts for the very wealthy, um, we on the left very broadly conceived are, are used to sort of discourse that begs for more taxes, right? Um, which has somewhat 
led us to to steer away from questions about the relationship between tax and violence, like the relationship between tax and and theft, whether taxation is theft, whether theft is a form of taxation in these colonial contexts. So I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that relationship. Well, I think many entities have used taxation as a way to further the aims of the state, but there's always been a relationship between, if you like, the rulers and the ruled in relation to what taxation is about. So if we think about the forms of taxation that had existed in these parts of India before the British arrived there, you had the Mughals, and the Mughals did tax the population. And in taxing the population, they would often save some of that tax as a fund. So should there be a crop failure or an unusual weather event that caused food shortages and so on, that there would be money available to mitigate against the worst effects of of these phenomena. And so there was a reciprocal relationship between the political elite and those they governed, and the taxation bound the population to them, but they then also had a responsibility to that population. When the East India Company took over the tax-raising powers within these areas, they raised the taxations by a factor of five over a period of 20 years, and they took the entire revenue that they collected to Britain. For pri- it was a private, uh, it was private wealth basically, and so and so when there was a crop failure and there were issues which led to famines, there was no sense that the East India Company officials felt that they had any responsibility to the population. And in fact, Warren Hastings, who was a governor of Bengal and comes in after the really catastrophic famine that happens in 1770, which killed one in three of the population in Bengal. So 10 million out of a population of 30 million died of starvation. He noted in his report on these events that it was extraordinary that the East India Company had managed to increase its tax revenue even during the worst periods of the famine because of the policies that it had established. So one policy was that the entire village would be responsible for the tax burden of all members of the village, even if those villagers had died of starvation. And so there were ways of ratcheting up the amount that was being extracted. Also, farmers would often keep some grain in reserve as insurance if there had been a crop failure or something. But because under the East India Company rule, taxation was seen as profit, then all grain reserves were required to be sold in order to maximise the revenue that they were collecting. And so I think there's something there around the fact that under the Mughal period, taxation is something that's embedded in political relationships. Whereas with the East India Company, what you see is that politics is being used to secure private interest through taxation. And so if you're looking for an equivalent to understanding what's happening at the moment, we see that politics is being used primarily to secure private interests and not collective interests. Could you talk just a little bit about uh, these home charges that you write about? A fascinating name, of course. I'm interested in how those function as a, a way of draining labour and resources. So alongside the income tax, which was brought in in 1860, that the population paid to Westminster prior to that, as the East India Company uh, had established its rule across parts of India, they created this thing called home charges. And this was effectively the tax that would be paid to them in order to fund their rule of India. So colonial subjects were being taxed in order to facilitate their own subjugation. And so in that sense, the money that was collected was seen to be the income of the government of India, but it was income that was derived through both 
you know, well, drive through rent taxes, opium tax, salt tax, all these other taxes that were levied within those territories. And then they were sent to Britain. And there was a mode of, you know, so this is where the relationship becomes quite complicated, because it's not straightforward that this is simply a state enterprise, or that it's simply a private enterprise in terms of what's going on. Because one of the things that we have to remember is that many of the people who were high up within the East India Company were also MPs in Parliament back in Westminster. So the people who are lobbying in government for particular sorts of subsidies and concessions that the company ought to have were themselves the direct beneficiaries of those companies. So state money was often used to support the activities of the East India Company, but the money made by the East India Company was private wealth, not going straight back into the coffers of the state, although the state would have a stake in the amount that was being raised and and so on. So it's a very murky relationship. And you also have a sense that loans get raised by the government of India against future taxation that the population is going to be paying. And those loans would be used to invest in, for example, railroads in Argentina or North America and so on. Once those railroads were built and were producing a profit, that profit went to the investors and the shareholders and the the loans that had been taken out to initially fund that investment had to be paid off through taxation by the colonial populations. So there were all sorts of ways in which what we understand to be pure capitalism on one level has only been made possible through these forms of uh, colonial appropriations. There's a question of sort of sovereignty and and geography bound up in your work. You talk about taxation and and resource theft uh, being spent elsewhere. So the people from whom it's stolen don't get Uh, either welfare or indeed a kind of Keynesian multiplier effect. And of course, there's also the the direct political impact of of having an underclass that's right there outside the palace gates, as it were, um, having an impact on a government's willingness to to mollify it with social support. So it seems like the basic fact of geographic dislocation is important here, which sort of leads me to wonder how we apply your formulation to places where arguably colonial dispossession takes place within the same kind of imagined community of the nation state. I'm thinking here and about, you know, for instance, the position of, of migrants who like, return to the c- colonial metropolis and still aren't uh, entitled to uh, welfare payments on the same level as quote, quote citizens. Um, and there are also arguably the um, example of chattel slavery, where, of course, the theft of res- resources and labour takes place sometimes within the same household um, as the place where those uh, resources are, are spent, hoarded, etc. So, um, yeah, your thoughts on that would be very, very welcome and clarifying at this stage of my personal confusion. Well, I think... One of the things that that I, w- I was quite surprised by is trying to piece a lot of this stuff together. You know, so there's a question that gets asked by many historians about why there were no revolutions in Britain in 1848. So across the entire continent of Europe, there were massive uprisings, and these were often seen as, you know, working class uprisings or uprisings in relation to socialist ideas and goals and and so on. But these never happened within Britain. And then I came across the work of Miles Taylor and Martin Daunton, who both argued that because, in a sense, the British state didn't have to rely on its own population for the finances to be able to do what it wished, it could actually have little to no taxation at home, such that there wasn't a sense that its domestic population was in any way feeling disenfranchised or, uh, you know, the, the pressures that existed on the continent, for example, didn't exist in Britain. And for me, the most plausible explanation is the one given by Taylor and Daunton in the sense that, well, actually, conscription, for example, didn't occur within Britain because there were colonial subjects who were part of the British army that did the fighting overseas and so on. Taxation 
wasn't required of the domestic population because colonial extraction substituted for that more than enough and it was sort of sufficient. And so there's a sense in which the local population acquiesces to a system from which it benefits, even if those benefits aren't straightforwardly visible. And so this is not to suggest that people within Britain were not uh, living in abject poverty and there weren't issues of inequality that were also extraordinarily pertinent within the national context. It's simply to set out that, again, if we think of Britain as an empire and we think about the ways the poor are treated across the empire, one of the things that we see is that the poor in Britain aren't allowed to die of starvation, whereas the poor in India and Ireland, which is outside of Britain in many ways, are allowed to die of starvation. So the famines that occur in 1845 within Ireland occur because the British state, even though Ireland is part of Britain at the time, the British state doesn't have any legislative responsibility for Ireland. And in part, that's because Ireland wasn't part of its taxation regime. And so when some welfare eventually is provided to Ireland to try and uh, address the, the, the massive deaths that are occurring through, through the famine at that time, one of the arguments that is made is that this shouldn't be a grant, but a loan because the population has not paid by taxation or the population has not paid taxation to the state and so it deserves nothing in relation to it. But then we see the argument in relation to India where famines are also occurring and here the population is paying taxation and yet still there's an argument that they're not deserving of welfare. So I think the Irish and Indian cases in this context are both the most similar and actually, one of the things that I think is interesting is how the issue of taxation is used in both cases, in one to deny welfare because they're not paying tax, and in the other to deny welfare despite them paying tax. Yes, and of course, if we conceive of the British state as this expansive global enterprise as you lay out, the idea that there are no uprisings in the mid-1800s collapses almost instantaneously, right? You've got in 1857 in India, the Sepoy uprising uh, in 1867 in Ireland, for instance, you have the, uh, the Fenian uprising and continuous uh, rebellion and resistance uh, through, throughout uh, enslaved populations within uh, Britain's expansive, violent apparatus of chattel slavery um, uh, across the Atlantic. So um, I'm wondering how your attention to where wealth is being stolen from and from whom allows us to kind of clarify the nature of, of the state at that time. And I'm, I'm particularly interested here in that uh, relationship of, uh, of the, the slippery relationship between the kind of theft that we see in chattel slavery and the kind of theft that we see in uh, taxation in the Indian subcontinent, for instance. So I think one of the things that's really interesting here is how historiography sort of shapes what it is that we see and what we don't see. So for example, again, given the focus on Britain as a nation has us think about 1848 and the absence of revolutions there as a real puzzle and why was that and what's you know what's special about Britain at that time whereas if you just take this step back as Miles Taylor and Martin Daunton do and think about it in the context of empire you see that there are reasons why those uh, revolutions aren't happening in Britain, whereas they are happening across the European continent. And you also see that, yes, there are actually rebellions in other parts of the British imperial polity. And those connections are really important to understand what Britain is about and to understand the relations between the different parts of empire as well. So if we take it a little bit further back, one of the things that we see is that the Royal African Company, which was the main company that was set up within Britain for the transportation of Africans across the Atlantic for sale in the Americas, is set up through profits that are made 
through the East India Company and its sale of calicos primarily, partly within the African continent, but also to Europe. So there's a direct relationship between the East Indian trade that the profit from that is used to set up what comes to be known as the triangular trade. And these trades are then mutually reinforcing in terms of the wealth that gets funneled into Britain. The wealth is quite differently understood in the sense that what you then begin to have out of the triangular trade is both the sale of human beings, as well as then the coerced labor on plantations. And then you have the profits from plantations themselves, which are quite extraordinary. And the work that's being done recently within Britain by Catherine Hall and um, her colleague Draper, Nick Draper, around the legacies of British slave ownership project has been extraordinary in setting out the extent of wealth that both was embedded within the business of enslavement itself, but also then with the wealth that comes to be funneled into British society as a consequence of abolition. Because as I'm sure as many people know by now, that abolition didn't lead to compensation for those who had been enslaved, but rather compensation for those who, air quotes, had lost their property, where their property was other human beings. And so the transfer of wealth at that moment from the British state to those who had owned other human beings is extraordinarily extensive. And if you trace that money and where it goes, much of it ends up in institutions such as art galleries, country houses, Oxford and Cambridge colleges, private schools, etc. So the very social fabric of the nation is funded both through the wealth of the trades in human beings and the profits through their coerced labor and also then in abolition. And it doesn't end with abolition because one of the things that happens after abolition is that the trade in human beings from the African continent to the Americas reduces and is immediately replaced by trade in human beings from the Indian subcontinent and China through what is known as indenture. And here there's a fiction that these people have been uh, have, have decided to go voluntarily. There's the idea of a contract. But often the people who are being taken are illiterate. They haven't read contracts. They can't read. They don't understand what's going on. And actually the conditions that they find themselves in are not dissimilar to the conditions of the slave trade as a whole. They're taken in ships across the world to go and work, coerced to work on plantations within the Caribbean and across the Indian Ocean world as well. And the very same people who have argued for abolition within Britain are often then also involved in the trade, that the indenture trade that, that immediately replaces it. So whilst we think there are certain sorts of narrative endings or at least transformations that occur, one of the things if we look across the state of the British Empire is that things don't necessarily transform as radically as we might imagine they do, but actually that they continue in in a different form. And indenture continues until the early 20th century. I think it's only finally outlawed in about 1920. That brings us on to the case, possibly illustratively, of Edward Coulston, uh, famously dunked uh, in statue form in the Bristol docks in 2020, of course, known to history as he would prefer as a, a generous philanthropist and known to reality as a complete execrable monster um, and slave trader. But those two things, of course, are very much linked in your account. Uh, you trace the development of the welfare state as we know it today through these sort of philanthropic efforts through the Industrial Revolution. Uh, that seems to me as a kind of quite challenging proposition to the way in which we understand the welfare state in the sort of atlee miracle 45 nostalgia sense as a, as a, a great victory 
for the UK domestic working classes. So what is that relationship between welfare and philanthropy in your in your account? Well, I think one of the things that we see is that as a consequence of the immense wealth that's being brought back by East India Company officials uh, during the period of the East India Company rule within India, that that amount of money has to be, if you like, made acceptable within British society because there was a scepticism or a, a hostility even to the immense wealth that was brought in and a sense that that wealth was going to distort what it was to be British and how one might understand British values, if we want to use that term, of that time. So Edmund Burke, for example, somebody who's thought of very much as a conservative uh, thinker, was one of the keenest critics of empire because he felt that the wealth that empire was producing was utterly distorting um, British society. Thinking about the relationship between philanthropy and welfare, one of the things that becomes clear is that the state didn't have to contribute as much to welfare over the 19th century, in part because welfare was being taken care of through charitable activities and through the philanthropic activities, particularly of returning East India Company officials as well as others. And there was a sense in which the wealth that was brought back had to be justified in some way. And Andrew McKillop has a chapter in an edited volume that will be coming out in the next couple of months called Imperial Inequalities that I've edited with my colleague Julia McClure, in which he talks about the ways, particularly in the Scottish context, of how when people came back with this immense wealth, they were often regarded with great suspicion. And one of the ways of allaying those suspicions was to contribute to poor relief within the parish to pay for the establishment of a hospital or a school or something like that. And so there's the possibility of sort of tracking the amount of private wealth that comes to be donated to what we would see as uh, social institutions such as schools, hospitals, and, and so on. What happens in the period during the two wars is, as I was saying earlier, that you have this conjunction between warfare and welfare, where the sacrifice that's being made by the population is deemed necessary of recompense. And the establishment of a welfare state comes to be one way in which this can be um, developed or achieved. Now, the literature on the history of the welfare state and the literature on the end of empire, again, is completely separate. And yet you have Indian independence in 1947, or well, let's say you have the end of the war in 1945, Indian independence in 1947, and the establishment of the British welfare state in 1948. These three events are very rarely discussed together. And yet when you do bring them together, one of the things that you see is that Britain leaves the war owing India something like $1.3 billion at the time. And this is because of loans it's taken from the Indian government in order to fund the war. And so it has a massive debt, and yet it still manages to find the funds to establish the welfare state. And some scholars, a few, have asked, well, how does Britain come to fund the welfare state. But only a couple have pointed to empire as the solution, because in a sense, whenever Britain needed money to do anything, who it turned to was empire. And this is no different in this context. So whilst Britain owed India something like $1.3 billion, it managed to not pay at least a third of it. So it concealed the debt in lots of ways. It made India responsible for the pensions of all British officials who'd been working in India until their deaths and, and so on. So there are all sorts of costs that were then put onto the newly independent governments, as well as a failure to pay the debt in full. Alongside that, at this time, remember, Britain is still an empire. And obviously, the welfare state is not for the remaining empire, it's simply for the nation. And yet still, the rest of empire has to fund this welfare state that's being established within Britain. During this period, there's uh, a need for dollars. 
And yet people aren't willing to pay dollars for much, but they are willing to pay in dollars for raw materials, raw materials such as tin and other such things, rubber, for example, and Malaya, which is a colony of Britain, Nigeria, Ghana, these places, they have raw products that people on the world market are prepared to pay for dollars in. Those dollars should have gone to Malaya, Nigeria, Ghana, etc. Except Britain has established a rule at this point that all dollars have to be held in London. So all the dollar earnings of the remaining colonies are siphoned into London, and London uses those dollars for what it wishes to do, and then sets up a colonial development and welfare fund, whereby it returns some of this money as aid to the countries. Now, these countries contributed something like £240 million to the dollar fund. What was returned to them was less than £20 million in aid and welfare. And plus, it comes with the, the, you know, uh, the, the loaded term aid, whereas it is actually their own money that they had earned through selling their raw products. And so you see that there are ways in which the British state manages to balance its books is only still through extraction from empire. And yet there is no discussion in the literature on the British welfare state that asks, where is the money coming from in order to fund this new development? It's not coming simply from the taxes of the national population. It is coming from much further afield. And given that debates in the present make a very strong correlation between your entitlement to welfare in the present and whether you and your family have historically paid taxes in order to be able to justify your right to claim welfare in re- is in relation to that. How does that question then open up when we consider the fact that colonial subjects across the British Empire have paid taxes and have paid through their labour and resources to the British state and yet have never been regarded as entitled to the redistribution of that money. And yet the national population believes itself not only to be entitled to the imperial dividend, but also to refuse sharing that imperial dividend with former colonial subjects or their descendants. And that, for me, is the political question of our time. And it's not going to be solved through a class politics, but only through an anti-colonial politics. How does that relationship between uh, colonial taxation and redistribution through welfare shift as uh, Britain loses an empire or rather as the empire is successively defeated in 50 50, uh, odd countries across the world? Uh, Is there that linkage between the shrinking of the welfare state that we're seeing at the moment and the kind of successive defeat of empire? I mean, one of the things that welfare or those who study the British welfare state have commented upon is how from the sort of 60s and 70s onwards, the welfare state is already in retreat. And the arguments that are provided as to why that might happen never address the fact that this is the point at which empire is fully systematically dismantled. And so there's a direct correlation between the final end of empire insofar as there is a final end of empire, and then the welfare state going into decline, because taxation has never been the primary way in which the British welfare state has been funded. And now that it has to rely only on taxation or primarily on taxation, national taxation, it finds that it's not possible or it doesn't have the will to do that. Conversely, I'm wondering as well how those terms of taxation have been translated into new forms as the global economy is reshaped to sort of uh, deal with the the demise of this you know prior world system in the kind of neoliberal reshaping of racial compacts of capitalism through things like IMF debt restructuring and global labour hierarchies. Are are we to think of those as forms of tax as well, or are we uh, dealing with something different? 
Well, I think there's lots of sort of strands to that argument. So if we think about it in terms of global labor hierarchies, and again, relating it to possible uh, developments within politics in the present, one of the things that has been sort of tentatively trailed is the need to allow increased migration into the country. But there's also a strong commitment to paying low wages. But there's also a sense that whilst you could or maybe you could or should pay migrants low wages, you have to try and level up, although I don't know if the language of levelling up is going to remain with the current version of the government. But nonetheless, that sort of difference has been solved, if you like, by scholars such as Glenn Whale and Eric Posner and others who argue for bringing the Qatar model into Western societies. And the Qatar model is basically that you allow global migration because one of the ways to address poverty elsewhere is to allow people to move to earn money that they can send back. But by allowing that, you potentially have an impact on the low wages of in inverted commas, the native people within those societies. And so how do you protect their wages versus these low paid migrants who are coming in? Well, one way in which you can do that is allow them to migrate, but without rights. And if you allow them to migrate without rights, then you can pay them less. And in fact, in one of the more egregious examples put forward by Glenn Whale and Eric Posner, they were suggesting that Americans, and here they're talking about North Americans, should be allowed to rent a migrant, that this was the way that you could bind poor Americans into the project of addressing global inequality by allowing them to rent a migrant so that they would get paid for the work that the migrant does. Now, to me, that sounds pretty much like a previous system that had existed on American soil. But nonetheless, they put forward these proposals to the World Bank. So when we call for the radically redistributive projects such as universal basic income uh, in the domestic territory of the United Kingdom, for instance, this seems obviously like an urgent thing that we need to think about, that we need to manoeuvre within. I'm um, putting in mind here of um, Utsa Patnaik's work on how imperialism must impose wage deflation on people in the imperial periphery in order to squeeze out larger and larger supplies of a range of commodities required in the metropolis without bringing into play the problem of increasing supply price that would threaten the value of, of that purchasing power, um, aka how the effectiveness of things like UBI uh, can be undergirded by uh, the kind of global labour hierarchies and the kind of uh, systems of uh, wage theft, resource theft that we have been discussing here. So how on earth uh, do we kind of manoeuvre within that as, as a sort of domestic left when we're formulating these demands? I think one of the things that we have to think about as the domestic left is that we've never simply been domestic. We've always been colonial. And so in that context, one of the things that we have to recognize is the extent to which, however terrible the situation remains domestically, it nonetheless has been improved significantly through the labor and resources and taxes of those within the colonies. And so what is required is a reckoning with that history and an understanding of redistribution as reparations as the way of addressing this. I mean, we have to also think about this in the context of the climate catastrophe that's basically upon us and think about the fact that there are no mitigations or adaptations that are going to save us from climate catastrophe. What there is, is the possibility of transforming how we live such that we could create a world that works for all of us. And in that sense, I think our vision is too narrow if all we're thinking about is a situation that is domestic and not thinking about how we have come to be who we are as a consequence of these broader histories and what our responsibility to that history is in the present. And for me, that is something that can only be addressed through a reparative lens and a reparative lens that is both the way that we think about issues of poverty and inequality in the present, but also that motivates our actions in relation to these issues. What does that kind of collective wealth building and wealth distribution 
potentially look like because as we've as we've discussed or rather nodded to the the nation state as we know it at least in the UK seems like a very inadequate vehicle for the kind of sovereignty and decision making it would take to underwrite these huge and urgent uh, projects of reparation that are necessary to uh, d- deliver this new transformed world. So are we talking about uh, reviving some kind of form of like a, a internationalism in the working class? Uh, are there other institutions that are needed? What is going to be the uh, the vehicles of, of our salvation here? It's a big question, but you know, if you could solve that issue for us in about two to three minutes, that would be great. <laughs> Well, I think there's lots of things that are happening and what would it take to create conversations and build on these things together and collectively? So, for example, if we think about CARICOM, the Caribbean Commission on Reparations that Hilary Beckles and others have been actively involved in, and they're arguing for reparations from Britain in relation not only to the fact of slavery and the coercion of labour, but also the fact that all the profits that were made from that labour were taken back and were used within Britain. And they contributed to the establishment of institutions such as the NHS, of education, of schooling, and and so on. And they're arguing that their labour has contributed to the development of, I would call them, social democratic institutions in the UK. And in arguing for reparations, they're not arguing for individual reparations. They're arguing, as I understand it, for social democratic reparations, for a redistribution of wealth that would enable them to establish or uh, develop their national health service, their national education uh, processes, and so on. There's also... um, actions that can be taken by institutions. So the University of Glasgow, for example, has had a reckoning with the extent to which its wealth and its possibility of existing as an institution has come dramatically from the profits that were made from sugar plantations worked on by Africans within the the project of of European um, slavery and, and servitude. And so they've committed reparations of £200 million, which will go partly to the University of the West Indies, but also to scholarships for black students within the UK who wish to study at Glasgow and other such initiatives and, and so on. So I think there are arguments that can be made on those sorts of levels. Another thing, and I'm not arguing for it simply in semantic terms, but aid is given. Aid suggests that the poverty and inequality that exists in the world is natural. And we, because we're good people, are going to provide charitable uh, donations to help other people. If instead of thinking of it as aid, we thought about it as reparations, what that would force us to do is consider the extent to which the quality of our life is based upon the inequalities and poverty elsewhere. And so if we were to take responsibility for the wealth that we have, and here I'm talking about it socially, then we could think about addressing those inequalities through just redistribution, through reparations as a way of accounting for that. So we need to shift our thinking away from development and aid, away from the idea that inequality and poverty in the world exists just naturally and think about the ways in which these processes have been produced. And again, I would come back to climate catastrophe as the way of highlighting those relationships if only we would see them. So the floods that happened in Pakistan just over the last few weeks, Pakistan has contributed less than 1% to global greenhouse emissions. And yet Britain, of which Pakistan had been a part because it was a part of India for over 200 years, has contributed, I mean, Europe and North America together have contributed over 90% of global greenhouse emissions. There is a responsibility for those countries that have benefited from particular sorts of actions, which are now visiting this sort of catastrophe upon poor and impoverished populations elsewhere, not to help as an act of charity, but to address the inequality that they've produced and to think about the connections by way of which those places have been made poor. 
And so I think there's a sense of needing to expand our own horizons in terms of understanding how it is that we have come to be who we understand ourselves to be today and to recognize those broader histories that have produced that. And if we don't do that, we're going to reproduce the most parochial of identity politics and the language that we see being mobilized, both on the left and the right, because we don't have a proper understanding of these broader connections. What would you say to people who would hear the phrase, the the social wealth of Britain, and sort of stand in boggled amazement, somewhat understandably, um, looking around at the collapse in living standards, the idea that this is a sort of class wealth that happens to be located in Britain versus a British social wealth. And I'm interested in how your work kind of can help us untangle those sort of complex relations between this kind of quote unquote domestic working class and the international working class in the colonial periphery and how those kind of relationships of you know, collective solidarity can be built. And I keep coming back to how the idea of the white working class in appropriate scare quotes is used as a real cudgel to shut down the complexity of these questions. So th- there always needs to be a broader reconsidering of our past in order to be able to make sense of the present. So if we think about the language of, um, or if we think about the ways in which we understand capitalism, for example, to have emerged, there's a sense that if colonialism is thought about, if at all, it's thought about as something that precedes capitalism, which then becomes this particular economic system, which is disassociated from politics in a very particular sort of way. And it's about the workings of an economic system. And this is seen to be problematic. And this is what, together with John Home, would have argued elsewhere, that coming from Marx, we come to see capitalism as somehow the relationship between capital and labor. Or then within the work of Wallerstein and others, we see it in terms of markets and the expansion of markets and so on. But in both sort of ways of understanding capitalism, the thing that gets missed is the continuity of colonialism. And I would argue the constitutive nature of colonialism to capitalism, such that we can't understand capitalist processes without thinking about the ways in which they have been fundamentally shaped through colonialism. But because we put colonialism into the past, we fail to understand its continuity in the present. So we only have to look at the workings of the East India Company and think about the immense wealth that was accumulated by private individuals that was enabled by the state, but wasn't directly organized by the state, to see in the present the ways in which financial services are making immense profits, not directly organized by the state, but enabled by the state, such that corporations in the present often have greater wealth and more power than many political entities. So how do we go about having those conversations about what solidarity looks like um, against the uh, assumption that the kind of relevant political constituency is the white working class? And also, on the other hand, that um, I guess that's 1945 uh, nostalgia politics. I always go back to the argument for history that we don't understand the present and we don't know who we are without understanding the histories that have produced the present. And those histories have to be understood in terms of the shared and connected processes that have created the world that we inhabit in the present. If we think about the emergence of class politics safe in the 40s, so the welfare state and the ways in which the welfare state was organized around this idea of the working class and to support them. One of the things that we see at the same time, and Du Bois is writing this in 1945, is the way in which the white working class within North America and Europe is being that decommodification is funded 
through the continued exploitation of colonial subjects. That is that welfare within Europe and North America. And here again, we mustn't forget, you know, we often think that uh, the US didn't have a welfare state. Well, actually, it had corporate welfare for white workers within corporations. And it was as black workers began to enter those firms that workers voted to get rid of welfare for everybody rather than to share that welfare with African-Americans as well. And so there's a very explicit way in which colonial labor has been used to establish welfare for the working class within Europe and North America. And however terrible the conditions still are for working class people across these places, A, there has to be a recognition of of that particular relationship. And secondly, there has to be a recognition of issues of poverty and inequality that are structural. And so for me, the issue is less to do with the identities that exist and the ways in which we try and make these um, make sense of these issues through identity. And I see class as identity in this context, and rather would be concerned to direct my efforts and my attention to the structures that produce inequality and poverty. What is it that we collectively need to do to address those structures of inequality and poverty, which if we did what we needed to do, would ameliorate the conditions of everybody who lives there, regardless of what they look like. So the issue, again, for me, is not class, it's anti-colonial politics, where the anti-colonial politics is precisely about addressing structures of inequality and poverty that have been produced through colonialism. And on that barnstorming note, I do think that's probably, tragically, all we have time for. Gaminda Bambra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarramedia.com forward slash support.